Hello, everyone, and welcome to BibleQuest.tv, the Tuesday edition. I hope you'll join us today in the conversation as we discuss questions and comments from you in the audience. We're glad you're joining us today. My name is Drew. I'm in Honesdale, Pennsylvania, and with me today is Stephen from Gettysburg. Hi, Stephen. Hey, Drew. Welcome, everybody. Good to see you. Also from Gettysburg is Scott. Hi, Scott. Afternoon, Drew. Afternoon, Stephen. And Jeff from Exton will be joining us in a few minutes. So we'll say hi now to Jeff, and then he'll just pop in. Hi, guys. Oh, there you go. Very nice good. Yeah. Uh, Noah's also with us, our webcast engineer, helping with your questions and comments. Glad you're here. Also, Noah, hi. Hello. Okay, let me, uh, huh. there we go. Stop the sharing of the screen. Okay, so guys, we've got a few things on, on the, the list today. Uh, where are we going first? Well, I think we, uh, we're going to wrap up uh, briefly. We had gotten a comment uh, at the end of the show last week that I think Scott had a comment on. Um, Herman had uh, commented, um, he said, I try to encourage people to read the Bible while they still attend their denomination. I never encourage anyone to not listen to God's word by not attending their assembly. Am I wrong to encourage them not to leave until they read and understand why they have to leave? Scott, did you have a thought on that? Just the point from Acts chapter 17, verse 11, that we're, we're wanting people to look to the word. And uh, when Paul uh, is able to go into the synagogue in Berea, it said in Acts 17:11, no, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word uh, with readiness of mind, all readiness of mind, examining the scriptures daily, whether these things were so. And, you know, it's we as Christians take Paul as authoritative. We, we understand his, uh, that he was a chosen vessel. Uh, that he was appointed as an apostle, and we accept his word as authoritative as an apostle of Christ. But that's not how Paul went into a synagogue. He didn't go in and say, all right, I'm an apostle, I'm inspired of God, you need to listen to what I say. He, he went in, and as we see in Acts 17, verse 2, he went in and for three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Now, once a person understood he was an apostle, then he could speak to the Corinthians as an apostle. But he, he's pointing them to Christ and to scriptures about Christ. So I think uh, uh, the listener's comment uh, ha has merit in the fact of if we go in and just try to tell people what to do, as if it's what we say to do, you have to stop this, you have to do that. Well, why should they? They need to see it from the word. And so to encourage them to look to the word, always making not ourselves the authority, but pointing to the word. Yeah, that, that happens a lot when we are in a discussion with somebody and we start telling them what our beliefs are and we're not look, we're not giving the reference or the exact words from the Bible. And they're looking at us and saying, well, that's your opinion or that's what you're saying. Yeah. And right. you know, why isn't one opinion as good as another? We need to point to something beyond ourselves. I really like the way Peter responded when he went back to Jerusalem. Um, we were studying this uh, yesterday with a fellow. Uh, and, you know, when Peter is 
sent by the Lord to Cornelius' house, how does Peter seem to feel about it in chapter 10? He's reluctant. Yeah, he seems pretty resistant until he gets multiple signs that this is the Lord's will. And when he sees it is the Lord's, and he is, he is kind of distressed and wondering, what on earth did that sheet vision mean? You know, what he's perplexed. But when the Lord said, go, Peter went. And he went in saying, now, you know, <laughs> Jews not supposed to be in here, but God told me to go. So here I am. He gets back to Jerusalem, and the those of the circumcision in Jerusalem contend with him and said, what, in Acts 11? Oh, I forgot. He went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. Yeah, and they're not saying, hey, good job. This is a, this is a reproach. You went into an uncircumcised man's house and you ate with him. Okay? How does Peter respond? Uh, we were studying with the Roman Catholic and we were pointing out, he didn't say, listen, I'm Pope and I decided this is the way to go. Somebody sum up his response in Acts 11. Well, let me tell Excellent. you the history here and where, what we've done. And, yeah. and he talks about how, who are we to stop or who are we to prevent them from accepting the gospel? Yes. He tells about the vision that he received. He tells about the angel telling Cornelius to send for him. He tells about when he got there, you know, and the spirit told him to go. He tells about when he got there, the Holy Spirit fell on him while he was still speaking. And you just cued in on his set. He said, who was I that I could withstand God? You know, it, it's who am I to argue with God? And that, that there's value in remembering that we're not trying to get people to go along with what we think. It's, it's what God said. And you know what? What God said might be what I like, or it might be not what I like. But Peter's question still stands. You know, I was reading a post from a friend on Facebook today, and they were saying that it's really a pretty frightening thing to make the decision that you are going to obey the truth, whatever the truth is, because sometimes that's going to agree with what you find, you know? Oh. Okay. Okay. Well, it turns out I did believe the truth on that. But if you find the truth to be something other than what you believe, and even other than what your friends and family believe, when you're committed to following God's truth, it's like signing a blank check. You know, you yeah. don't know what it cost you in the future, but that's what we all have to be willing to do is to say, I will follow God's truth wherever it takes me, which of course for Peter, it ended up being something pretty different than what he anticipated in Acts 10 and 11. And it took some convincing to, to let others realize what the truth was. And for Paul, his was a pretty shocking truth in, in Acts chapter nine, but when the went with God's truth, um, that's what we've all got to be willing to do. Yeah, Stephen, you admit you just used the term uh, the cost of commitment to Christ. Isn't there a principle that Jesus teaches about that? Yeah, that's right. To know yeah, the cost. Count the cost. If you want now, to take up your cross and follow when, him. And what, but when you first come into contact with the truth, I'm speaking for myself, you didn't know the whole picture. You didn't know what the total cost was going to be. But that yeah. does tell me that, well, there's, there's going to be something more going on here that may be a cost to me. Be prepared. But if, if Jesus is the true, in the true way, then, okay, I have to go that way. Yeah, that's right. 
and let's rather than another man's thought or rather than our thoughts and beliefs and what we're saying, we need to direct people to what the the Christ said. Let's think about that cost there in Luke 14 too. Jesus said, you know, if fellow is going to build a tower, he first sits down and counts the cost, whether or not he's going to be able to finish it. Building a tower, you count the cost. And if you suppose you say, well, that tower is going to cost me $1,400. I think I'll build it. Ooh, that tower is going to cost me $2,300. Maybe not. $4,600, I'm not building that tower. You know, a lot of things we we base like that. But in coming to Christ, what's it going to cost us? And somebody told me a story within the last week or two that somebody asked some question uh, to Paul Earnhardt, maybe it was overseas, and they said, what's it going to cost me? And he said, everything. It's not, because we're not talking about this many dollars and this many cents. If, if we put something in front of Christ, that's the wrong thing. Does anybody think that that's too much? We need well, to remember that we, go ahead, Stephen. Well, and, and you have to also weigh the cost of rejecting Christ. Oh, yeah, yeah. It costs you everything, either way. Either way, good point, good point. You know, I didn't mention this earlier on, but we want to have the audience come in with their questions and uh, comments. Please use the Q&A button if you're coming in through the BibleQuest.tv Zoom app. If you're on the Facebook page, you can put some questions there, and and Stephen will see those. We'd love to hear from you. Go ahead and get to some of the questions we've got here. Um, Let's start with this one. We've got uh, three up here right now. Let's start with this one in the middle. I'm conflicted with the story of Rahab the harlot because she saves the spies' lives, but she lies to the guards and says she doesn't know where they went. She's listed in Hebrews 11 for her faith, why is it okay that she lied? Thanks. Enjoy the show always, Holly. So what about that? Um, oh, that proves it right there. Certain lies are allowed. And, and, and a lot of people would approach it that way. Exactly. Um, and so then we come up with our definition. Oh, that was a white lie, you know, and, and that type of thing. Or it was uh, a lie that, uh, that was a lie that per, uh, perpetuated God's work. Yeah, and that's how a lot of people live, which is a very situation ethics approach. Uh, but this is this is a notable event here that she did lie, and that yet she was approved. Um, there's several things we can go with this, but first let's start with this one. Uh, Stephen Drew, what was her occupation? She was a prostitute. Yeah, and yet she's in Hebrews. 11. 11. And James too, for better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, is there a possibility she was dressed immodestly? Absolutely. Probability, you might say. <laughs> so, Very high probability. So the perhaps we shouldn't be looking at the point of, was Rahab doing everything right in her life? Was she a righteous person and everything was, you know, a, a model for us? Or how would you describe Rahab? What's Rahab doing here? 
well, she's taking her life and her family's life into her own hands by helping these spies. Um, Because they actually, they find out about the spies and they come knocking on her door, um, you know, saying, where are the men that came in here? You know? Um, And so it's, it's notable to note, to see Rahab's faith in chapter two, where she says, I know that the Lord has given you the land and the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. And she's heard about the miracles and the plagues and all these things. Um, and so Rahab is commended for her faith, which would be yes. particularly surprising in a Canaanite prostitute. There you go. Yeah. And she, uh, instead of trying to hang on to everything that's been near and dear to her, she puts her faith in God. And, you know, James chapter four says what? Draw nigh to God. And he will draw near to you. Will draw near to you. There's another instance of some uh, non-Israelite women who told a lie, and we see them uh, the benefit of what they did, and in, in they're being commended in Scripture. You remember back in Exodus one? Mm-hmm. Yeah, when they uh, lied about the yeah the midwives, and they would apparently told a lie about oh the Hebrew women are vigorous and they give birth before we get there and. Um, you know, so we weren't able to execute the baby boys. And so instead of going along with the King's plan to kill these baby boys, uh, they protected them. And that was, that was appreciated. Well, how about, how about David? If you're going back to other examples, David lied, right? And yes, he did. He misrepresented himself in front of King Echis or Ashik. I don't know how you say it. He also lied about, um, when he went to the high priest and asked for the showbread, he lied there and it led to the death of the high priest. And David later felt guilty about, you know, his actions, which led to the death of the high priest. So what we're seeing then, I don't know if you made the point already, but what we're seeing is that we're seeing real people who are sinners. And this is real life. That doesn't condone the sin. It just shows us that they're really people who, like all of us, are sinners. And and with Rahab, you know, I, I'm not going to take the point, oh, it's okay to be a prostitute, you know, but she, in faith, turned towards God. The midwives, you know, they helped those babies and, and helped God's people instead of going along with the murderous intent uh, uh, of the other. And they, they had not had as much revealed to them either. Um, uh, in the New Testament, Jesus said, to whom much is given, much is required. Uh, so I think we should be careful about trying to take everything from these events and try to use them as a role model for us to justify dishonesty uh, and that type of thing, but to appreciate that these people were taking a step in the direction of of helping God's people or putting their trust in God. Before, that- uh, before Stephen, you, you, you add your comment. I just want to say, Jeff Sabeltzer, you have joined us. We're glad you're here today. Yep. Thank you. Good to be here. Stephen, you were going to say something? Just on Hebrews 11, I've heard it observed before. I think this is helpful is that sometimes we take Hebrews 11, uh, that every name mentioned in there suddenly gives it redefines the way we view these people's lives that it's like oh these are people of faith i think 
in some instances, you see that person's life being characterized by things of faith, but no one in Hebrews 11 is perfect. And in some ways, Hebrews 11 is more cataloging of acts, great acts of faith, more so than just great people of faith, because there's some pretty worldly people. I mean, look at Samson gets in there, whereas Jephthah has some pretty tragic things about him. Um, but so does everybody else in there. Abraham lying about his wife, David, his great sin. You know, the, no one in Hebrews 11 deserves to be there in that sense. Um, the, the, no, one, no one in Hebrews 11 deserves to be commended just wholesale. Like everything they did was great, you know? Um, and so I think that's an important thing to note just about the nature of Hebrews 11, because that question comes up a lot about various people in Hebrews 11 is, well, what about this thing they did or that thing they did? Well, look at those things they did. Were they right or wrong? The fact that they appear in Hebrews 11 doesn't somehow give a blanket approval to everything they did. I wonder if the tendency, I wonder if the tendency to look at such stories as, as Rahab and the midwives in Egypt and so on, to look at these and, and be perplexed by how these people can be commended when Rahab was a harlot or the, the midwives lied or something like that. I wonder if that tendency doesn't arise in part because sometimes people tend to think of God's people as people who were, are righteous enough to be God's people. And, and we forget that. No, God's people are people who've done all the same wrong things that everybody else has, but we're being saved from those things. And so if we come at it with that, with that understanding, then it shouldn't be a surprise to us that a Rahab coming out of a pagan world and coming to be numbered among God's people is going to have a history of immorality. Mm-hmm. And lying, which is what the first question was about. She was telling lies about this. Well, yes, right. The lies. Yeah, I got in late. We've had several comments come in um, on both of the previous question and this question. The ones pertinent to the current question, uh, Holly comments, weren't some women forced into prostitution, though? Um, Y'all have a comment on that? I'm not sure what what the the point would be uh, of of that observation, and I, but I guess I would just say this: um, we we cannot be forced to sin. Uh, I think of the passage in Revelation that talks about those who love not their life even unto death. Um, so I always have a choice to choose. I can always choose to do what is right. I may suffer grave, grave consequences. I may lose my life, but God's people don't have to choose to sin. Yeah. Amen to that. And also there's a question here. Rick writes, haven't heard a good response to when it is okay to lie. Uh, We're not saying it's anytime. Okay. To lie. Um, Revelation 21, eight talks about all liars there are, are condemned along with the, the cowards, the idolaters, etc. Hold um, on, hold, hold on, hold on. That verse then condemns every single human being. Well, every single human being is condemned. Romans 3. Exactly. And so people will say, they'll have a conflict between then the two sides of the principle. But isn't that term all liars referring to those who do not repent? Well, yes, and particularly in the context of Revelation, I think it has to do with this. Uh, we've got correspondence between Trajan and Pliny, 
about <clears throat> what they did with people accused of being a Christian. And uh, Pliny, the younger, being governor of Bithynia, he says, I give them three chances to deny Christ. And he said, I've got an image of you here for them to burn incense to and worship the gods. So if they will curse Christ, if they will burn incense to the emperor's image, and hence the idea of worshiping the beast, Romans uh, 13, Revelation 13, and worship their gods, then, uh, and Trajan says this, yeah, they should be forgiven from their point of view because they repented from being Christians. But Pliny says, I know that a true Christian won't do this. And some would come in and say, oh, yes, I used to be, but I'm not anymore. And, of course, some would have, as uh, Jesus talks about in persecution, some are going to wax cold. Some would have come in and lied and said, oh, yes, I curse Christ. I, I worship Caesar. And, in fact, there's a Catholic term for this. It's called mental reservation where you can say, well, I'm saying this, but mentally I'm not, you know, I'm reserving. Uh, and I, I might have the parameters of what they would apply that to out of context here. It's like having your fingers crossed behind your back. Maybe something kind of like that. The point is Pliny realized real Christians won't do it, but plenty did. And that's the context within Revelation 21.8 liars and cowards because when I'm brought before the authorities and I can worship Caesar and say he's God, then I, what am I? I'm an adulterer and a liar and a coward. That's interesting that thinking about that context. And I don't, I don't know that that's the totality of the reference for, for all of these things, but boy, it sure fits a lot of them here. You, the fearful, or you're, you're saying coward, the, unbelieving or another way to translate that unfaithful somebody is, uh -huh. is not faithful to god when they right. express allegiance to to or bow down to the emperor and worship him as deity abominable murderers you might even think of people who would um under the uh, under the threat uh of the roman powers uh start telling on other christians uh, you know Tacitus talks about in Nero's persecution that they did, you know, then people would tell on other people. Well, and Jesus himself said, brother will deliver brother over to death, I believe, in some of his yeah. talk about. And fornicators, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to suggest that there's no reference to actual sexual fornication here, but certainly the Bible uses the idea of sexual sin as a, as a metaphor for unfaithfulness to God. And so you'd have a spiritual immorality and sorcerers and idolaters, idolaters sure fits, Sorcerers, um, well, uh, this was in Acts, the 19th chapter. Uh, uh, we see evidence that people who had become Christians uh, sometimes hadn't always given up all of those kinds of things. And then the, the liars, of course. That's interesting, Scott, those comments there. Yeah. You know, uh, and as we're talking about this with the lying, it does bring us back around to the cost of doing what's right. And we had a couple of comments come in earlier. One from Herman said, some people don't want to pay the cost. I was facilitating a class and a Christian woman told me that she's nobody's savior. She should not look to help people. Uh, which is a pretty extreme example of someone who doesn't want to help other people and say, oh, I'm nobody's savior, so I don't need to help people. That wow. goes against what Jesus said. And Lori commented, uh, Jermaine, to counting the cost discussion, this is a quote that I chew over frequently. It's true in so many areas of life, but what more important, what more important choice than whether to follow God? 
And the quote is this, every time you break the law, you pay. And every time you obey the law, you pay. That's from John Gardner. And so that is a pretty interesting way to look at that is it's going to cost us something either way, whether we break God's laws or obey God's laws. And it's can come down to it in a sense, which cost uh, we're really looking at, which of course the cost of rejecting the Lord is far greater than any cost of, of obeying him. We've got another question here. Um, and, and please, those of you in the audience, if you've got comments, questions, let us hear from you. Uh, there's one in queue from uh, a few days ago, looks like over the past week maybe, uh, that we still haven't got to. Let's go ahead and hit that quickly. What thoughts do you have about multiple marriages and concubines? How do we harmonize these accounts? And of course, you can read about those in the Old Testament. How do you harmonize these accounts of godly men? Uh, who openly did these things alongside what Jesus, of course, in the New Testament, taught about marriage and faithfulness. I think you guys rearranged things. I thought you guys were supposed to answer this question while I was not <laughs> with you, so I thought I was going to avoid this one. Now I know why Scott said, hey, let's go with this question in the middle. Now I know. <laughs> So, Jeff, do you have any comments on that? By the way, that question came in from Harv. Harv, thanks for asking that question. Okay. What thoughts do you have about multiple marriage and concubines, and how do we harmonize these accounts of godly men who openly did these things alongside what Jesus taught? Well, uh, you know, there are various things in the Old Testament that God seemed to tolerate, though they were not the ideal that he had in mind. In the beginning, in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, I think it is, uh, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It's not three becoming one. It's not three becoming two. It's two becoming one. And um, yet we don't get very far into the Old Testament before we see the first example of polygamy, and it's when Lamech takes two wives. And if you read the few brief verses of Lamech there in Genesis, the fourth chapter of his story, uh, keep in mind, that's all we know about Lamech. And for some reason, we're told those things about Lamech. And everything that we're told about Lamech is uh, certainly not, not flattering of his spiritual mindset. Right. Uh, he's an arrogant fellow. He is the first to take two wives. And, and, and note is made of that. Uh, his posterity, though they had some success in material endeavors, their success was in material endeavors. And then immediately after the story of Lamech and his arrogance, we see Seth's descendants being described, and he has a son named Enosh, and men began to call on the name of the Lord, and there seems to be a contrast there. So polygamy starts with a man who seems to stand for rebellion against God, and yet we come down in the Old Testament, and we see Abraham having more than one wife. We see in the law of Moses, um, there is provision made for a man who dies that his brother would take his wife and raise up descendants to the name of the deceased brother. And apparently this would even be true if the brother who takes the wife is already married. We see David having multiple wives. We see Solomon having multiples of multiples of multiples of wives. And so we ask the question that's, that's being asked here, how do we reconcile that? There were various things under the law that were not God's ideal. And, and one of them is, is, has to do with marriage 
in another sense, and that is marriage and divorce, the permanency of marriage. What God has joined together, let not man put asunder, Jesus says after quoting Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And yet in the law of Moses, in Deuteronomy chapter 24, the law of Moses explicitly acknowledged divorce and regulated it to some degree. And Scott, you were making the point we were discussing in the in the earlier part about the, the expression hardness of heart. You might want to talk about that in Matthew 19. Yeah, I, I had just mentioned it, uh, so I don't have a whole lot to say about it, but I, I'll read the text. Uh, so in Matthew 19, um, we've got this. The Pharisees, uh, Jesus has said, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Uh, quoting Jesus, quoting Genesis 2. Then Jesus' comment, so there are no more two, but one flesh. What God therefore joined together, let not man put asunder. They say unto him, why then did Moses command to build a bill of divorcement and to put her away? He said unto them, Moses, for your hardness of heart, suffered you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it has not been so. Yeah. Uh, I'll make a couple of observations. One, Israel was a nation. And so one of the differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, Jeremiah 31, would be what? I'm going to make a new covenant, Jeremiah 31 says, with the house of Israel, not like the old one. And what were some of the things that were going to be different in the new covenant? The commandments will be written on their hearts, not on stone. Yes. So for much of Israel, where were God's commandments? They were written on stone. They were were set before them. And now he's going to put it within them. They were written on stone. And now he's going to put it on their hearts. So was most of Israel faithful to God? No. No. So for most Israelites, God's law was not in their lives, but it was on that stone tablet over there in the ark. Mm-hmm. So the people, if you def- talk about the people as a whole, they, you're talking about a people defined outwardly rather than inwardly. Yes. When you yes. talk so, about people that are defined outwardly, they are going to be hard-hearted because people generally are hard-hearted. And so then you have uh, going on in Jeremiah 31 in the new covenant, they won't have to teach each other to know God because they will already know God under the new covenant. People enter that kingdom voluntarily. We surrender to the kingship of Christ. We confess him as Lord surrendering our lives to him. as we've talked about earlier in the program. And so, you know, you don't have to tell somebody, hey, Jesus is the Lord. You ought to, you've got a community of people already committed to that. Whereas, take any village of Israel or Judah, mm-hmm. and guess what? You're going to have some people there. You may have some people who are devoted to the Lord inwardly, but you're going to have some people who are not. You're going to have some people who don't know God. Mm-hmm. And yeah. yet they are a part of the kingdom because they were born. Right, right. right. So as, as Isaiah said, and it's quoted in Romans 9, if Israel is as the sand of the sea, it is only the remnant, remnant that yeah. will be And so some of the laws of the Old Testament are, we might keep in mind, given for this hard-hearted nation. Yeah. And they're not always the epitome 
of uh, what is best. And so I think you have an example of that in the, in, when we start talking about concubines and, and polygamy, multiple marriages. I don't think that uh, Abraham is, is going to be condemned to hell because he had Hagar and Sarah at the same time. I don't think that David is going to be condemned to hell because he had multiple wives. God accepted that, but he, was, he had a, a lower standard for a nation that was defined outwardly than he does for a nation that's defined inwardly. And, yet, and Jesus then further identifies it, that that's the way it was, but that's in that time frame, but that's not the way it was from the beginning. This is the reality. Yeah. Two other quick observations. One, from Deuteronomy 17.17 and Deuteronomy 21.15. Deuteronomy 17.17, neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that his heart not turn away, which is exactly what Solomon did. Yeah. But that didn't mean it was an absolute prohibition of polygamy, Deuteronomy 21.15, if a man have two wives, one beloved, another hated, and they have borne him children, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and one other observation I'd like to make, and it doesn't necessarily apply to this because we did have uh, references to polygamy in the law, and it doesn't exactly apply to Rahab and the uh, midwives because some of what the, the, the goal of what they're doing is commended and, and there's a blessing or commendation as they're either helping these children survive or they're putting their faith in God. But just a general observation I would like to make is this. Sometimes when reading the old Testament, we read about people doing some really rotten things and the old Testament doesn't always stop and say, by the way, that was a really rotten thing. Right. It tells you what happened. And a classic example of that is when you get to Levi and Simeon. Yep. So there's this fella and he wants to marry Dinah. And Levi and Simeon said, well, if you want to marry our sister, you've got to be circumcised. You and all your men. Yep. So then while they're circumcised, what do Levi and Simeon do? Take the sword and kill them all. Yeah. And does the text stop and say that this was wicked or this was wrong? Or no, you know, no. Their father is really upset for them with them, but he's upset because he believes this is going to bring trouble for him. And then the chapter of the story actually concludes with them saying, well, should we let him treat our sister that way? And, and the story is left right there. And then when we get to the end of Genesis at Jacob's death, when he's giving either blessings or cursings or, or, uh, statements about his sons, he lays the guilt on Levi and Simeon. Then, then we know. Mm-hmm. We had a comment come in from Cassandra. It says, throughout the scriptures, I definitely see a theme of God holding his people to a progressively higher standard. Before the patriarchs, the patriarchs, the nation of Israel, then the new covenant. Each group has the benefit of previous information. I like uh, that. I like that. Yeah, that was, that's you good see that uh, kind of progression as you go through. I will say, just on the note of polygamy, it is notable to me that even though we see that tolerated uh, in the Old Testament, it never ends up very well. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it didn't go very well for Abraham with the Hagar situation. It did not go well for Jacob. No. And, uh, whole thing there. It did not go well for Solomon. Um, and even David has some. Elkanah with his two wives, and Hannah. Hannah was very much grieved with uh, her rival. Yeah, <laughs> her rival. Yeah, J- Jacob and and um, Leah yeah. and Rachel uh, and, and uh, I mean some of the patriarchs. They might have had DSS called on them. I mean, there were, there, <laughs> there 
there was some dysfunction in those families. Well, so. What is DSS? Department of, no, no, D, <laughs> maybe it's DC, Department Social of Child Services Service. or whatever, yeah. I got oh, the wrong, got uh, the wrong acronym. Sorry. I, I want to I take, uh, Rick had put in a comment before on the previous question, so I want to take his comment and apply it to this question. He says, Have, haven't heard a good response to when it is okay to lie, so I wanted to turn that around. I haven't heard a good response when it's okay to be a polygamist. Yeah. Although, yeah. wasn't there a, a group in this country that had multiple wives based on, you know, within their religion. I don't know if they still, does the Mormons still do that? No, they don't. Some splinter groups do, but I, I, Joseph Smith claimed to have gotten a revelation back in the 1830s justifying polygamy, but he put in the Book of Mormon that you can't justify polygamy. He put in his Book of Commandments that, that the accusation that they had more than one wife was not true. But then he wrote, and it later became published in Doctrine and Commandments, a uh, commandment from God that you are to have polygamy, and it was addressed to his wife. His, his brother actually got him to write that. He said, if you will write the revelation, I will read it to Emma, and you can have peace. <laughs> in other words, the reason that was written was because Emma was not happy about the other women. Uh, Joseph said, you don't know Emma like I do. Hiram said he believed he could convince any reasonable man or woman of it. Joseph said, I'll write the revelation and we'll see. This is all from history of the church by volume. Joseph Smith is it's, I bought it from the Mormon church. This is a lot of them don't know about it, but it's there. And uh, so he said, I'll write the revelation. We'll see. So he writes the revelation that says you have to receive the commandment of polygamy. And uh, it contradicts the book of Mormon. What he had said before and then it says it commands Emma to receive the women that were given to Joseph, and if she, but she has to keep herself to Joseph or she will be destroyed. Uh, she, he went off with it. Later, Hiram came back, and Joseph asked him how it went, and Hiram said he had never received a more severe talking to in his life. <laughs> he was very resentful and full of anger. Joseph smiled and said, I told you, you didn't know Emma as well as I did. <laughs> um, she burned up one copy. His secretary kept the other copy. After Joseph's death, the Utah group published it. It's now in DNC. But then guess what? Later, they wanted to join the United States. And the United States government said, no statehood till you get rid of polygamy. And so a later president of the church received a revelation that they didn't have to do the polygamy anymore. Wow, that's a very interesting. I knew some of that, but I didn't know all of the history on that. That's very interesting. Uh, while we're talking about Joseph Smith and, and the Mormons, I've got Fawn Brody's book right here, No Man Knows My History. Oh, yeah. Read it. Oh, go ahead, Stephen. Uh, I think our Facebook Live broadcast has ended. I am not sure why. It still says live on Facebook, but I've been following our feed on my Facebook page, and it's it's done at 35. Uh -oh. Did we get cut off from Facebook? No, we got cut off. So uh, I reloaded the page. Noah. Um, I checked on that. So I don't know if we want to stop Facebook right now, but funded. <laughs> <laughs> what, what did you say, Scott? I just asked if Facebook was Mormon funded, maybe. Just. Oh, <laughs> I don't know. Conspiracy view here. Yeah. So I, uh, <laughs> all right. Is it, did it come back? Well, well, I'll tell you what, while you're, while you're doing that, I'll read this real quickly. If you reload that page, maybe, maybe people are watching, maybe they're not. 
but on this uh, about Mormonism, this is from Fallen Brody's book. I'll just read a brief excerpt. Sometime during the spring of 1843, Joseph succeeded in convincing Emma of the inevitability of the new marriage system. Um, so then we come down, it says, after much bitter hesitation, Emma selected Emily and Eliza Partridge, now respectively 19 and 23, and the ceremony was performed on May 11th, 1843. Emma had no idea that these girls had already been married to Joseph some two months earlier. To save family trouble, Emily wrote ingeniously, Brother Joseph thought it was best to have another ceremony performed. (laughs) (sighs) Joseph's entry in his journal for the date of these marriages indicates that he bought Emma a new carriage, but it was small solace to her. From that very hour, however, Emily later wrote, Emma was our bitter enemy. (laughs) Yeah. We bought her a new car. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's, That's rough. So yeah, that might not, that might not be a bad topic coming up in a future program where we look at historical facts or statements of the religion of Christ that most people many people may not know. Let's uh, let's read this text also just on the subject of uh, polygamy. Um, besides Jesus's teaching and going back to Genesis two, we also have this statement in First Corinthians seven. Let each man have his own wife. Let each woman have her own husband. Amen. And that, that answers a lot of problems that we're facing in our society today. But so. Yes, indeed. And that's, that is certainly uh, Jesus's response that we've already read in Matthew 19. Uh, answers that there's one man, one woman. What God has joined together, let not man separate. Paul confirms this, 1 Corinthians 7, let each man have his own wife, each woman her own husband. There's no room for polygamy um, from what we see taught in the New Testament. And let's say, I have just one more comment. Marriage is work, but when we throw marriage out, it creates so, so many complications and problems better to do the work and honor marriage and honor our spouse uh than do what our culture does is just throw in the towel on them throw in the towel on the institution of marriage turn it all upside down and pervert it and everything else and not only do have men and women suffered for that but children have suffered for that over and over and over and over not, not only is, you just said marriage is work, but yeah, the alternative is even more work. Yeah. And again, it's back right to counting the cost that we've been talking about. There was a judge uh, was in Arizona um, dealing with a case before her or him. And this was the fellow's second divorce. And, and with all the trials in there, in, in, one thing he said during the process, he said, if I would have tried half as hard in my first marriage as I've been trying in this one, you know, there never would have been a divorce in the first place. Interesting. Yeah. Any other comments on this topic? Any other, com- any other questions or comments? So we officially lost the Facebook feed. 
Yes, we did. Um, and Noah just comment on there that we may try to post it to the Facebook page later. Uh, yeah, well, we can do the whole recording as we're recording it now through the uh, Zoom app. Yeah, that's the first time we've had that happen. So. What's that? That's the first time we've had that happen. Yeah, I don't recall it ever being shut down. Mm -hmm. Interesting, interesting. Any oh, thoughts? We got about a minute left. Any? Do I want to go into any other? Start any new questions? Were there any comments or questions we left out though? I don't think so. I think we addressed all the comments that had come in today. And just as we wrap up, I think we just see, you know, God's God's plan for His people is good. Um, and particularly with this question of polygamy, we just see, even though there was a uh, a time where that was tolerated, it did not go well for the people that did that. Yes. And now we, we of course, in Jesus teaching in the new Testament, we see it's God's intent. Mm -hmm. that it'd be one man and one woman for their life together committed. Amen to that. Harv, Harv just made a comment. Thank you for the discussion on this issue. It was very helpful. And, and I want to thank Harv for starting the discussion. I, I want to invite everyone to submit questions, comments, give us more things we can talk about and share with each other and um, you know sometimes maybe debate a little bit but we'll get to the bottom of it because we always go to the word as the final answer anything else gentlemen that's it ah, we've come to the end of our program today and we look forward to seeing everybody next week same time yeah thanks everybody bye-bye thank you bye-bye